Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, and uh, you can grab your Bibles. Uh, we are still in our series in First and Second Kings. I think we've decided that uh, that when I when I try, we bit off more than we can chew for the summer in First and Second Kings. In hindsight, I should have just done First Kings and then Second Kings and then split up Second Chronicles. But you learn as you grow in your faith and as you preach and as you become a pastor. So. What we're probably going to end up doing, well, we are going to do it. We're going to stop first and second Kings and then pick it back up next summer or at some point during the next year and start second Corinthians come in the fall. So, so if you're, if, if that happens, don't be panicked, but second Corinthians is where we're going to be going for the fall, uh, to work through as a body and as a church. And so you can be reading second Corinthians, being prepared for that, uh, and getting your hearts ready, uh, for that message. And then again, we'll pick back up, um, this series when we, at some point uh, when, we, when we have time. Uh, our series is In the Lord's Sight. Most of you have been here. I'm not going to go through this, but there might be someone joining online, listen to this podcast later, that um, you know, the, the Bible in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, God is always saying, you know, in the Lord's sight, this king was righteous, this king was evil, this is what happened. And the idea that God is watching and he's looking for those that seek him. He, he wants to bless. He wants to have a relationship. He wants to engage humanity, which is why we have Jesus. Because literally Jesus became man and God in the flesh and engaged us fully. And that was the promise of the Old Testament. That someday God would send a Messiah and it would be clear that he is the Messiah, which Jesus came back to life to make that clear, to in everyone's sight say, I am who I say I am, Jesus said. And so now when we look in the Old Testament, it's pointing forward to that. And God is saying, who are the ones in the Old Testament who will live looking for me instead of, and my salvation, and my Messiah, and my Savior, instead of making themselves their own saviors? Instead of trying to make themselves righteous in my sight, they'll surrender to me so that I can do the work. And that's what we see in First and Second Kings. Remember, kingdom is split. Right? It split with Rehoboam uh, in the southern kingdom and, it, and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam committed terrible sins. He decided not to follow God. God said, please, if you're going to break away from Rehoboam, which I know you need to do because Rehoboam is so wicked. He's like, I get it. You're going to break away. I understand that. Please do not abandon me when you do this. Please. Let my people from the north come to Jerusalem, even though Rehoboam's over Jerusalem, even though, like, it's going to be awkward that you're going, like, don't let them not come do what's commanded in the Old Testament to prepare them for the Messiah that's coming. And of course, Jeroboam didn't do that. Jeroboam created a whole new system of worship. He created two new temples. He created two golden calves and said, these are now Yahweh you're going to worship. And, he, and then he shut off the, the border. The southern border, he shut it off so that people couldn't get to Jerusalem. And, and it became warlike. And you see these moments when Israel and Judah are almost going to war with each other, but there's like this awkward peace between them. And that's where we find the story many generations later, many kings later. And you know, we find ourselves in similar times, wondering what's right in God's sight? What is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do? How do we have God's perspective? There's all this division, all this brokenness, right? There's all these, what, what does it mean? Everybody said, believes different things about scripture. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this one comment, which fits well considering what our government's been talking about recently. And that is, do you come in peace? Because if you don't know, our government's been talking about UFOs recently a lot. 
like there's all this UFO stuff coming out. By the way, I heard a really good or a pastor talk about a, a, a kind of a good synopsis that, you know, we don't know that Satan is the um, prince of the air, right? We don't know how much of stuff is demonic and angelic that we see. They're active, right? He tells us they're active. I don't know if they're aliens or not. I have no idea. But this question, do you come in peace, wasn't about aliens way back when. It was about do you come with the peace of God, or do you come to bring war? Are you coming for yourself? Are you coming for your way and what you want to be right? Or are you coming because you truly desire to find peace in God and to bring peace among the nations? That's the question at the end of the day. And that's what we find when we read through this passage. We pick back up the story. And I want to back us up a little bit. If you go back a couple of chapters, in 1 Kings 19, this is Elijah speaking. Elijah says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, go and return by the way you came to the wilderness of Damascus. So this is right after Elijah has the big moment and the fire comes down on Mount Carmel, and then he flees for his life because Jezebel wants to kill him. Do you remember this? King Ahab and Jezebel, very wicked people of the northern kingdom. And they go after Elijah to kill him. And he flies away and he's all depressed. And he's like, I'm all alone. Nobody understands. It's just me. And Satan loves to get us in those predicaments. And that's exactly where Elijah finds himself. And he complains like, God, I'm it. And God doesn't like come to him and say, oh, it's okay. No big deal. He's like, yeah, I get it. But you aren't believing the truth. And then he tells Elijah, he says, look, I've got something for you to do. You've got to go back. You've got to return. You've got to deal with this. You can't keep running. You've got to deal with the reality of the circumstances. And this is before Elijah's taken up on a fiery chariot. He's taken up before God into heaven. And look at what he tells Elijah. When you arrive, you are to anoint Hazel as king over Aram. You are to anoint Jehu of Nimshi as king over Israel and Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel Mahalath as, as prophet in your place. Then Jehu will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death whoever escapes the sword of Jehu. But I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. He literally says, you think you're alone, and I can give you 7,000 names right now. Just like that. I'm watching, Jesus. God says, look, I'm watching. In my sight, I see the ones who are righteous and they think I'm all alone. They're righteous, they're doing the right thing, they're not bowing to Baal, which would be costly in this culture. They're not doing what everybody else does. And he's like, I get it, you look weird. It doesn't make sense. But I'm telling you, there are 7,000 of those folks. Elijah, you're not alone. Now, is 7,000 very many? Nope, it's really small, compared to the whole population of the nation. Here's the incredible part about this passage. The only thing we're going to see in a minute that Elisha gets to do is anoint Elijah, or uh, that Elijah gets to do is anoint Elisha. He doesn't get to anoint Hazel. He doesn't get to anoint or do, do Jehu. He doesn't get to do any of that. The only thing he gets to do is he gets to anoint Elisha before he's taken up. In other words, he sets out on his journey that God has commanded him to go to Damascus. 
And all he gets to do is anoint Elisha to be the one who finishes the journey and does the command that he was commanded to do. So why would God tell someone to do something that they can't do, that they won't accomplish? Because that's what the whole Bible's about. When are you done being a parent? Like, do you finally check it off your list? Well, finally done. See ya. That's over. Good. Now I can live my life. Glad those kids are done. Are they still alive? You're still a parent. It never goes away. And your parenting's never done. It changes. It adapts. You hand it off. Jesus told us to go and fulfill the Great Commission and to tell him into the world, right? When is that ever done? You're never, we're never done. We got to keep doing that until he comes back and says we're done. See, this is the message. And so many times when God gives us a vision for our life, when God gives us the scripture and shows us how he wants us to live, how things are supposed to work, what we're supposed to do, it is so easy to get discouraged and think, well, it's not happening. I'm not seeing it. I'm not getting it. Instead of saying, maybe I'm not supposed to. Maybe I'm just doing the first step and then Elisha is going to do the rest. My kids are going to do the rest. The people that come after me are going to do the rest in the Lord's sight. I just want to do the right thing in the Lord's sight. So I'm going to start on my journey to Damascus. Oh, and by the way, on the way we get stuck and I get sucked up into heaven. Okay, Elisha, you heard the command of what needed to happen. It's all yours now. <laughs> you got to go do the rest. That's the great commission. That's what it means to go and make disciples. This is literally a great commission that Elijah was given. And watch what happens. Elisha actually fulfills it. And it takes like 10 to 15 years for this. So this was given, and ten, about 10 or 15 years later, this is where we pick up the story in just a moment. Because here's what Leviticus says. Before we read the rest, remember, the reason all this is happening in Israel, the reason there's all this pain and suffering and war, and there isn't peace, and it's a disaster, is not because God's mean. It's because the people made an agreement with God, and they're breaking it. And God warned them, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, here's what's going to happen because I love you. Look at Leviticus. Leviticus is one of the first five books of the Old Testament. It's the Torah. It's the law. And in Leviticus, God breaks out and lays out his covenant. And he looks at the people. He looks at the priests who are supposed to make sure the people are keeping the covenant of God. And he says, in spite of these things, you do not accept my discipline, but act with hostility towards me. God is warning them. He's like, in spite of everything I've done, in spite of all the miracles, in spite of everything I've done, you still don't accept my discipline. You see it as I'm being mean to you, that I'm, I'm mad at you, that I'm not. I'm a good father. And then he says, then I will act with hostility towards you. Listen, when God's mercy is despised, all he is left with is to be just because you're hurting people. When his mercy and grace are despised, all he's left with is his justice and wrath. That's it. Because you determined it. You don't want to deal with his mercy and grace. You don't want to have that in your life. And so all he has left for you is justice and wrath. And listen, he doesn't, like I've said before, he doesn't have to like bring his justice and wrath on you. All he has to do is remove his blessing of peace and mercy and grace. All he has to do is just take his hands off and the world will do its job to hurt you. Look at what it says. It says, then I will act with hostility toward you. I will also strike you seven times for your sins. I will bring a sword against you to execute the vengeance of the covenant 
Though you withdraw into your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you will be delivered into enemy hands. When I cut off your supply of bread, women will bake your bread in a single oven and ration out your bread by weight so that you will eat but not be satisfied. There's so many people who just keep eating and keep eating, trying to find God, trying to find more, and they won't find the peace and satisfaction in who Jesus is and what he tells us is the truth. And if in spite of this you do not obey me, but act with hostility continually towards me, I will act with furious hostility towards you. I will also discipline you seven times for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your sons and daughters. And remember, we just talked about that last week. Last week, there was a mom who boiled her son so that they could have a meal because they were so hungry, because they wouldn't repent. And the, and the army of Aram had surrounded and was ready to kill them, and they were eating their own sons. And this woman was complaining because it was time to eat again, and the other woman would boil her son. That sounds awful, and how could God let that happen? But hundreds of years before, God said, if you enter this covenant with me, it's worth it. I will love you, I will care for you, and I will be the father you never had. And then when God acts like a father, and God takes the authority of fathership seriously, we think he's mean and cruel and awful. When all along he said, all you have to do is stop acting in hostility towards me. Quit fighting me. Just surrender and enjoy the life and the peace that I offer. But you won't. It's a fight every time. And that's what we see between the northern and southern kingdom. They can't come to this place where they're like, man, it just keeps getting worse. By the way, eventually what happens is the Assyrians completely annihilate the northern kingdom, scattered forever. And the southern kingdom, about 150 years later, they go into captivity under Babylon because of their pride and their arrogance, thinking they're better than the northern kingdom, which is why God spared them. Instead of thinking, wow, if that could happen to them, it could happen for us, we better live by the, by the covenant that we made. You see, God always warns ahead of time. He's not like a deceiver. He's not like, oh, just accept me and it'll all work out okay. Have you read this? Is, he's like, if you make this covenant... This is what it's going to look like. He told them, if you get a king, this is what it's going to look like if you want a king. If you build a temple, this is what it's going to require for you to upkeep a temple. He always gives the full picture, and we don't want it. We just want to hear the good parts. We don't want the full picture. I don't want to hear about all that other stuff about a king. I just want a guy that can fight for me. Yeah, but that means he can make all your sons fight for him, even if he's unrighteous, and that's going to happen. I, I don't care. I just need somebody to fight for me right now. Like, this is what we do. And God in heaven is like, look, I keep trying to show you that I'm drawing. I want to give you my peace. I want to come to you in peace. But your hostility doesn't allow me to bring you the peace that I have to offer. Because you can't, you won't just embrace it, he says. He goes on, and this is where we pick up the story. Elisha came to Damascus. Where was Elijah supposed to go? Damascus. Elisha is finishing the task. He is finishing the command. He is finishing what God said needed to be finished. He's still on his journey. It's a long journey. He's winding. It's a 10, 15 year journey, but he doesn't forget, I still have to get to Damascus. When Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick and the king was told, the man of God has come here. So the king said to Hazel, 
Take a gift with you and go meet the man of God. Inquire of the Lord through him. Will I recover from this sickness? Boy, is that not a question we ask today. Will I recover, God? Hazel went to meet with Elijah, taking with him a gift, 40 camel loads of all kinds of goods from Damascus. It's interesting. Aram has this relationship with Israel that whenever it wants something, it comes with gifts and it acts all nice and we want peace and we want everything. And then in the next fail swoop, they're ready to kill them all because Ben-Hadad was just in war with them a little bit ago, right? Like this is that kind of duality that we aren't supposed to have as believers. We're supposed to have a singularity on the person of God and who he is. And what you see around that is people who have this duality. They can't just continue to come back to the Lord. And then it goes on and it says, when he came and stood before him, he said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you to ask you, will I recover from this sickness? So Hazel's like, look, I've been sent by the king of Aram to ask you, will I recover from this sickness? Now, here's the deal. They just were at war. Aram was. It was awful. I mean, if I'm Elisha, I'm like, no, because you're a jerk. And I hope you die. Because you hurt my people. Look at what Elisha says. Second Kings. Elisha told him, go to the king, Ben-Hadad. You are sure to recover. You are sure to recover. But the Lord has shown me that he is sure to die. So I recover, but I, I die. Welcome to every sickness you will ever have in your life. You will recover from it, and you will be reminded, I didn't die, but I'm going to die. One of these is going to get me someday. One of them I'm not going to recover from. Like, we look at this and we're like, oh, that's so profound. No, it's kind of just duh. Yeah, you, you'll recover. You're still going to die. Like, you're, this, that's not going to kill you. Like, that sickness, you're fine. I mean, my dad, we joke with my dad because my dad has like three like serious conditions that should, kill, should have killed him by now. Like, literally, he's got three conditions. All three of them should have killed him by now. And we're just sitting around going, we don't know which one's going to get him. And then a new one pops up and we're like, well, that might get you. And it's like a joke now. In our family, and it sounds so morbid, but it's not because my dad knows it doesn't matter if I recover from all three of them. I'm 83. I'm the oldest living Shockney in my entire family line that we know of. Man, I've had a great life. I'm not getting out of this alive. And he tells all the nurses and doctors that. I got to go in if I visit him and pray with all the nurses and doctors where they can do anything on And not pray that it'll all go well. Just, Lord, help these people know that you're God and your will be done in this situation. He goes on. Look at what happens. Because this is what happens a lot of times when I'm working with people, discipling people, probably in your own life with your own children and in relationships. Here's what happens. Then Elisha stared steadily at him. That's Hazel. Until Hazel was ashamed and the man of God wept. So he says, tell him he's recovered, but he's going to die. And the second Elisha says he's going to die, Elisha knows how's he, how he's going to die. And he knows who's going to do it. Do you know how many times I have sat with people across the table and I've looked at them and I've said, you know, you've come to me with a problem, you've come to me with an issue, but I am telling you that is not the thing I'm concerned about. There is something deeper going on. There is something serious here. I am concerned on a deeper level. Don't do this. This you need to deal with. And you just stare at them and let them sit. And you're just like, 
And, and you leave that appointment, you leave that meeting sometimes, and you just weep knowing they're going to go out from here and they didn't listen to a thing I had to say. They're, they're going to do exactly the opposite of what God says is righteous to do. And that's exactly what happens. It goes on, and Hazel asked, why is my Lord weeping? He replied, because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. You will set their fortress on fire. You will kill their young men with the sword. You will dash their little ones to pieces. You will rip open their pregnant women. Hazel said, how could your servant, a mere dog, do this monstrous thing? Hazel's like, I'm nobody. I'm just a servant of the king. I'm not even like a child of the king. I'm not even next in line to take over the kingdom of Aram. Like, what are you talking about? I'm here to serve my king. Same thing I hear all the time in Christian circles. Well, I know Jesus. Well, I can't believe you think I'd do that. I'm a righteous, I'm good, I'm fine. Be careful lest you fall. Be careful lest you fall, the Bible says. Pride goeth before the fall. Be careful. And Hazel's like, oh, I could never. I'm just a servant. I'm such a, I just am doing the right thing. I'm here. Elijah goes on to say, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. The Lord has shown me that you'll be king. Hazel thinks he's a dog. He has no self-confidence because he doesn't know God. He worships the God of Aram. He doesn't know God, so he doesn't have his identity wrapped up in the person of God and who he is. His identity is wrapped up in other things, not in the people of God. Elijah knows that, and so Elijah prophesies and said, no, you're going to be king. Now, you and I know that if that was prophesied, then Hazel had a chance to say, whoa, if I become king and take matters into my own hands... I'm going to do what Elijah says I'm going to do. So it's probably best if I don't become king. But that's not what we do. Because when someone makes a proclamation over us, when someone makes a prophecy over us, when someone says you're going to be this, we so want to hear that. We so want to hear something from someone that tells us something good that we're going to get, that we think is going to bring us peace and get us to the place we want. We don't think about the consequences. We just take what we heard and say, I'm taking that. Goes on and says, the next day Hazel took a large took a heavy cloth, dipped it in water, and spread it over the king's face, and Ben-Hadad died, and Hazel reigned instead of him. He goes back. By the time he goes back, Ben-Hadad has recovered. And Hazel's like, well, yeah, you recovered, but I kill you. And he does it so stealthily, right? Just put a wet cloth, and then he can't breathe, and he just dies in his sleep, not being able to breathe. And you remove the wet cloth, and nobody knows. That you took the kingship. Well, but, but Elisha said I would be king. I'm supposed to be king. It was prophesied for me to be king by the God of Israel. So this is a right thing for me to kill this person. It's not right for you to kill anybody. No. This wasn't a holy war that God declared. This was you just taking one part of the story and saying, I want that, but you don't want all the consequences that come with it. And we do the same thing because we're so looking for peace. We're so looking for someone that will come to us and tell us what we want. The peace we're looking for that we won't take the whole story. And we'll sacrifice everything to get that one thing we want. 
That's exactly what you see happen. 1 Corinthians says this when Paul's writing to the Corinthian church. He says, now these things happened to them as examples. And they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. So all these stories we have like this, all that we've been reading in the Old Testament, in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, Paul says, look, all of these things have happened and been written down as examples to you so you don't have to be as stupid as they were. <laughs> but that, that's why they're there. It's for our benefit. Then he says, look at this. So whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to humanity. God is faithful. He is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. In other words, if you think you had to, that's a lie. You didn't. If you think, well, I had to, that's a lie. You didn't. You probably did the had to because you were avoiding a consequence or you were getting a benefit you wanted and you ignored everything else that came with it. You didn't have to, you chose to. God gave you a way of escape and you said, no, I'll do what I want. And he goes on and he says, he will also provide a way of escape so that you are able to bear it. Sometimes it's really difficult to bear our stupidity. It's difficult to bear the, the sin that we struggle with. But God says, look, I'm going to give you ways of escape. I'm going to give you opportunities to escape from what you think you have to be because you don't have to be that. You can have peace with me and my son Christ through him. And then he says, therefore, my dear friends, free Flee from idolatry. Remember, the northern kingdom was full of idols. Aram, full of idols. They just kept adding gods when God didn't work. And that's what we do. When God doesn't work, we start adding things that will work. It's this, everything in our culture is built that way. Every commercial is, God's not enough. This isn't enough. You need this. Buy it. It'll, it'll, it'll solve your problem. Then you buy it, you try it, and then down at the bottom, there's all the side effects. In small print that they say really fast at the very end of the video. And this will kill you. Like, what did they just say? I think they said I was going to die from liver failure if I take this. No, I don't. Let me slow it. Oh, yeah, they said that's probably what's. Like, we, this is exactly what God does. We actually, in our culture, require people to put the consequences on those things. That's biblical. Why can't we just like back in the olden days when a snake oil salesman out of the back of a wagon, you just pull up and sell it and everybody died, no big deal, and you just go to the next town and kill a bunch of people. Like they didn't have to put any disclaimers. Now we actually legally require it because we understand that we are wicked. And a temptation to make money, to have a product that helps people temporarily but doesn't deal with the long term, that temptation is so terrible that we need to put all these consequences, rules, and laws around it so we don't kill one another. Goes on and says, I'm speaking to you, Paul says. I'm speaking as to wise people. Remember, the Corinthian church was not acting wisely. They were a disaster if you go back and read the letter. I mean, it was a mess in that church. You think we got some problems? Whew, man, they had problems. And Paul says, I'm speaking to you because I actually believe that you Know Jesus because you have the Holy Spirit, that you have the word, that you can actually do what is wise instead of keeping doing what we see throughout Aram and 
Israel and all the past, you don't have to be that way. And he says, judge for yourselves what I say. I thought we weren't supposed to judge. No, you're to judge righteously, Jesus said. He says, judge lest you be judged, but you need to make righteous judgments. Are you judging rightly or are you judging wrongly? And Aaron and Hazel judged wrongly. And instead of bringing peace, and he thought he was coming to bring peace, he came to Elijah and said, my Aram wants peace now with Israel. He's bringing peace to the prophet. Hazel goes back and he just takes war back with him. Story goes on and says, in the fifth year of Israel, uh, Israel's king Joram, son of Ahab, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, became king in Judah, replacing his father. He was 32 years old when he became king and reigned eight years in Jerusalem. So he only lived till he was 40. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. Ahab was wicked, evil. It means he brought all the idolatry, brought it all in to Israel. For Ahab's daughter was his wife. I don't know how many times we have to read in Kings. Family mess and wrong marriages will destroy kingdoms every time. It's all throughout the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. It's everywhere that we make these compromises. That doesn't mean that you don't have grace on someone. You are never going to find the perfect man. He does not exist. And you are never going to find the perfect woman. woman. She does not exist. But there's a difference between just saying that and compromising and marrying Jezebel or this mess and saying, no, I want a woman that, that keeps coming back to God, that will take me back to who God is. I want a man that will keep pointing me to, to the person of God, to the people of God, not to what I want and my pleasure and my same hobbies and excitements because those will wear off. And when they do and you're just staring at each other and you got nothing in common anymore, if you have the God and his church in common, then you have a family that can help you endure. And so he looks and it says he did what was evil. The Lord was unwilling to destroy Judah, though, because of his servant David. In other words, God wants, he's looking down from heaven. Judah is kind of at peace and God is like, I, I want to kill him. You've been there as a parent, Right? You've been there as a friend. I'm going to kill him. I, you've been there as a brother or a sister. I'm going to kill him. Like everything in your heart's like, and then you go, yeah, but dad. Dad's not going to be happy if I kill him. You know? I'm going to have to figure out, have to explain that. My brother's going to be dead. That's not going to go well. Right? There's a fear there. Same thing. God's like, I'm not going to kill him because I made a promise to David and I'm the one that keeps covenants when everybody else is breaking them, God says. And his sons forever. In the twelfth year of Israel, King Jehoram, son of Ahab, Ahaziah, son of Joram, became king in Judah. Ahaziah, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king and reigned one year in Jerusalem. One year. You think we change presidents often. That's one year. He didn't even make it past a year because he was so wicked. Watch what happens. His mother's name was Athaliah, granddaughter of Israel's king Omri. King Omri was the first king that God said, King Omri did more wicked than any other king before him. And then when Ahab came along, he said of Ahab, Ahab was more wicked than Omri. And this is Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. 
You see that? She's the granddaughter of Omri, which means Ahab's her dad. You talk about messed up family relationships. He walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did not and did what was evil in the Lord's sight like the house of Ahab, for he was a son-in-law to Ahab's family. He was a son-in-law. You, you, you got to be careful. You, you know, the only thing that's ever going to be there for you all the time is family. You got nothing else. It's, it's just family. Well, if that's what you choose, if that's where you choose to invest yourself, then yeah, then that's all you're going to have. I'm not saying you shouldn't invest in your family. I'm not saying you shouldn't love your family. But be careful. Because if they become the priority in your life, it's told over and over again in this book. Constantly through, it goes on and says in Colossians, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him. Remember, Ahaziah, Athaliah, were walking in the ways of Omri, of Ahab, walking in evil ways. Paul is saying, walk in the ways of God, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. That's a faith. That's a belief that I don't get what I want. I don't get what I see. I trust God for what he says he will give. Whenever he gives it, I can trust him. That's faith. Just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. If you want to know if you're walking with God, one of the ways I can always find it in my heart if I'm struggling is how's my gratitude? How's my thankfulness? How's my joy? Because if that's off terribly, and it's not because I'm like crying and weeping for other people who don't know Jesus, but I'm moaning and complaining and like, wipe, you know, like whining about myself, I know that I'm in the wrong camp. I'm not walking in the ways of Jesus. Jesus never wept for himself. He always wept for the people. Jesus was confident in himself. He was confident in, in, in his, his father, in the Trinity. He was fully confident when he wept. He wept over people. And most of us, we weep over ourselves. We don't care about people and we don't even care what God says. He says, be careful that no one takes you captive like Athaliah, Ahab, Omri, through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition. Well, there's a tradition of the kings, and we brought the kingdoms back together by intermarrying. Now the kingdoms are united through a family. We have Ahab's family, and we have Ahab's family coming together. Where's David's family? Oh, well, yeah. No, you've tainted the family. You haven't made it better. You've made it worse. And then he goes on and he says, based on the elemental forces of this world, not based on Christ. Second Kings picks up the story. It says, the prophet Elisha called one of the sons of the prophets and said, tuck your mantle under your belt. So now, remember, he's anointed Hazel. That's taken care of. That was thing one Elijah prophesied 10, 15 years before. Now we're in the next part. Tuck your mantle under your belt, take this flask of oil with you, and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you get there, look for Jehu. That's the guy Elijah was supposed to anoint. Son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nifshi. That is not the Jehoshaphat the king. That's a different Jehoshaphat. Just like there's a lot of Matthews in the world, there's a lot of Johns. Like the, this, is a, this is not the king Jehoshaphat, Okay. He goes on, he says, go in and get him away from his colleagues and take him to an inner room. So pull him away, then take the flask of oil, pour it on his head and say, this is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. 
Well, that's kind of awkward. You're the commander of Israel's armies, and now this prophet's showing up and anointing you. Goes on and says, as soon as you do this, open the door and escape. Don't wait. <laughs> like, I just, I can't, like, the scene of this, when I read this the first time, just made me laugh. You see this prophet who's scared to death for his life. He's going against Ahab's family. Jezebel's still alive, and he's going to go anoint another king? Are you kidding me? I'd be scared out of my mind if God asked me to do that. And if the prophet Elisha asked me to do it, I'd be like, why don't you do it? Like, you're the prophet. You're the one with the miracle stuff. I just follow you. You go do it. Elisha's like, no, you got it. But do it quick. <laughs> Run for your life. So he goes on and says, he goes, so the young prophet, I love the fact that it says young prophet, right? He like calls on the young guy. Come here, whippersnapper. You can run a lot faster than I can. You're going to need all your speed for this, okay? And he says, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he arrived, the army commanders were sitting there. They're all sitting. All these army commanders that are of Ahab, of Jezebel, like they're of that army. It's like, imagine you walking in and being like, I'm here to overthrow the king. Uh, I don't know how this is going to go down. And he says, so he said, I have a message for you, commander. Jehu asked. For which one of the commanders, there's more than one. See, we have a unity here. We, we, we kind of get along. We're not like how Ahab runs his kingdom. We're not like how Ahaziah runs his kingdom. We're there at the top. We actually respect one another. So which commander do you want? In other words, Jehu is not commanding, oh, yes, it's me, of course, I am the commander. You're here to see me. No, Jehu's like, who, who do you want? We're all equals here. It goes on, it says, he answered, for you, commander. So Jehu got up and went into the house. The young prophet poured oil on his head and said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anoint you king over the Lord's people Israel. You are to strike down the house of your master Ahab so that I may avenge the bloodshed by the hand of Jezebel, the blood of my servants, the prophets, and of the servants of the Lord. The whole house of Ahab will perish, and I will eliminate all of Ahab's males, both slave and free, in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember, he was in Jeroboam's family line completely wiped out because of his sin. And then he says, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah. Basha's house was completely wiped out because of his sin against God, because he wouldn't repent. He wiped out all, allowed the wiping out of all of his family. The dogs will eat Jezebel in the plot of land at Jezreel. No one will bury her there. Then the young prophet opened the door and escaped. Now you're Jehu. <laughs> okay, I will talk in private. <laughs> Here you got it? Okay, we good? Okay, bye. And you take off and you're just standing there like, I got oil all over me. I'm going to have to walk back into the commanders covered in oil. And they're going to be like, what happened to you? Like, you're a mess. It's all, like, what and that's exactly what happens. We go on in the story. And it says, when Jehu came to his master's servants, they asked, uh, is everything all right? Why did this person come to you? <laughs> like they recognize like, you okay? You're like covered. You don't look right. And then he says, you know the sort. And they're ranting. He doesn't want to tell what happened. Jehu's scared too. He's like, I don't, I don't know. Tell him I've been anointed king. They all might kill me right here. Like I you know the kind of prophets that run around and they blah, 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 blah. Like that's, you know. But they replied, that's a lie. Tell us. Something happened. You're different. You got oil. This is not normal. 
What really happened? Look at this. So Jehu said, he talked to me about this, that, and said, this is what the Lord says, uh, I anoint you king over Israel. <laughs> he literally says, well, he talked to me about this and that and a few things. So he doesn't talk about annihilating all of Ahab's household. He doesn't, he, he's just like, and, uh, you know, he anointed me king of Israel. Okay, a beer for everybody. Let's all eat some chicken. This is great. Okay, what are we doing? Like, he's like just skirting, like, yeah, you know, he just, it's like, yeah, you know, I, I accepted Jesus, I got baptized. Okay, well, it's, uh, it's good, all good. You what? It goes on, and it says, Each man quickly took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. These men were waiting for a Messiah. These men were waiting for someone to make wicked Ahab and Jezebel and this wickedness right. These men were fighting for a different reason. They were fighting for Ahab and Jezebel, but they were fighting for a deeper reason. And it shows up when God shows up. These men are like, Yes. Remember how when Jesus came in in the triumphal entry, they laid out their garments for him to go across on the donkey? They're taking, they're disrobing. They're like, we are at your service. Then Jehu, son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Joram and all Israel had been at Ramoth-Gilead on guard against Hazel, king of Aram. Hazel is killing people. He's destroying them. And now God has them distracted and raises up Jehu. Do you see God has an order to things? Elijah just couldn't go in real quick and anoint everybody and say, I'm gone. There needed to be a process that had to happen. And God was unfolding that process little by little. We have the same thing in our life. God is doing a process to humble us, to get everybody ready, to, get, to put the pieces in place. Don't run from it. Live through it. Elisha lived through the process. This is 10 or 15 years later, knowing that he was supposed to anoint Hazel, knowing he was supposed to anoint Jehu. He knew these things and he waited faithfully, still preaching. We saw all the stuff Elisha did before, calling out sin, doing everything the last few chapters. And it goes on, it says this. Ahaziah's downfall came from the Lord when he went to Joram. When Ahaziah arrived, he went out with Joram to meet Jehu, son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. See, if you're going to be of the house of Ahab, it's coming for you too. You can't just avoid it because, well, that's just the northern kingdom. Goes on, it says, But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds that the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought against Aram's king Hazel. In other words, they lost. King got hurt, didn't go well, lots of people dead. That's what Elisha prophesied would happen with Hazel. All this is just unfolding. Jehu said, if you commanders wish to make me king, then do not let anyone escape from the city to go tell about it in Jezreel. Jehu got up in his chariot and went to Jezreel since Joram was laid up there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had gone down to visit Joram. Bad move. Good com bad company corrupts good morals. Ahaziah didn't have good morals, but he's getting ready to be corrupted. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel. He saw Jehu's troops approaching and shouted, I see troops. Joram responded, choose a rider and send him to meet them and have them ask, do you come in peace? Do, do you come in peace, Jehu? 
Like, like I, I, I know you're powerful. You're coming. Uh, do you come in peace? So a horseman went to meet Jehu and said, this is what the king asked. Do you come in peace? Jehu replied, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. You want peace? Come and follow me. Sounds familiar. Sounds like another person who came and said, do you want peace? Then come and follow me. Jesus himself, that was his message to every person. Come and follow me. Whose side are you on? He goes on and it says, the watchman reported the messenger reached him, but it hasn't started back. Everybody's surrendering to Jehu. Then it goes on and says, so he sent out a second horseman who went to them and said, this is what the king asked. Do you come in peace? Jehu answered, what do you have to do with peace? Fall in behind me. Come and follow me. Again, the watchman reported he reached them, but hasn't started back. Also, the driving is like that of Jehu of Nimshi. He drives like a madman. Like they know Jehu's passion. This is one. Like there are certain people that drive their armies. That's Jehu. Like it's got to be him. The way he's driving this, like he's coming, right? Goes on and says, Harness, Joram shouted, and they harnessed his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Hazziah, king of Judah, set out, each in his own chariot, and met Jehu at the plot of land of Naboth of, Je of the Jezreelite. Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember whose plot of land Naboth the Jezreelite was? That was the plot of land that was next to Ahab's castle. And he said, oh, I want that plot of land. And he acted all sad and miserable that he couldn't have it. And he put on a pouty face for his wife, Jezebel. And, and she was like, oh, I don't want to see you sad. And so they united together wonderfully as a couple. And Jezebel went and killed all of Naboth's family, had them all slaughtered and stole the land from Naboth. Remember that? And God said, oh, by the way, I am going to bring back judgment in this place on your family, Ahab, because you've done this. Here we are. God does and finishes what God says he will, do, he will do and finish in his time. This is many years later. This is 15, 20 years later, but it's happening. It goes on. It says, when Joram saw Jehu, he asked, do you come in peace, Jehu? See, isn't that always our question? Why wasn't it, do you come in war? Why don't why do we ask that? Do you come in wrath? No, we always want to know if it's peaceful. We always want peace and love and happiness. He didn't say, are you coming to kill me? Can you imagine if Jehu would have said, are you coming to kill me? Or if, if, if um, Joram would have said, are you coming to kill me? And Jehu said, yeah, God has told me that I've got to kill you because you won't repent. And then Jehu repented, put on sackcloth and ashes, tore down all the bales and asherahs, went back to Jerusalem and worshiped, and everything would be, like, he could have done that. And instead, he's so concerned about his own peace. He's so concerned about his kingdom. Do you come in peace? What do I need to do? How do I need to defend myself? How do I need to do all this? Versus just throwing himself at God and saying, if an army is coming after me, maybe I should take a minute and cry out to God and ask for him to save me. And Joram never does it. Not once. Because he's only concerned about his peace. That's it. Then it goes on and it says, He answered, What peace there can there be as long as there is so much prostitution and witchcraft from your mother Jezebel? You want peace? 
I can't have peace with you. You are so wicked. Your whole family's wicked. You won't stand up to her. You won't stand up to anything. No, there's no peace between us. I wish we could have peace. I can't when there is witchcraft and prostitution. Do you know what witchcraft and prostitution always point to? It always points to manipulation of people and manipulation of gods. That's what witchcraft is. Witchcraft is you getting the gods by incantation to respond to you. Prostitution is you going out to get the world to respond to you and to, and to take you. They're both the same side of the same coin. Sexual sin and witchcraft in the Old Testament are always related. Always because they're the same side. You want to use people, you want to use God. You want to use people, you want to use God. How about you do what God says to do with people? How about you do what God says to do with him instead of you using? And Jehu gets it. He's like, I am not going to partner with a user. And God is done with this. Then he says, look at this. Joram turned around and fled, shouting to Ahaziah, it's treachery, Ahaziah. It's not treachery. God said if you acted this way to his people in the Old Testament, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this is what would happen to you. Then he looked at his kings and said, if you act this way, this is what's going to happen to you as a king. And now it's happening and he's like, oh, this is so treacherous. I just can't believe this is happening to me, that God is doing this. You brought this on yourself. And instead of repenting, he's running. He could just repent in this moment. And instead, he's running. And that's what people do all the time. Instead of coming to God, believing that he has peace for us, believing he has grace, trusting him with our lives, that if I'm dead, I'm dead. If I live, I live. We run. We run. We run. We run. Now look what happens. Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow went through his heart, and he slumped over in his chariot. Jehu said, to Bichar, his aide, pick him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. Look at what he says. For remember. For remember. Jehu is a man of God's word. He knows the word of God. He remembers what God says. When you and I were riding side by side with his father Ahab, the Lord uttered this oracle against Ahab. As surely as I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons yesterday, this is the Lord's declaration, so I will repay you on this plot of land. This is the Lord's declaration. That's what was said before. So now, according to the word of the Lord, pick him up and throw him on the plot of land. When the king Ahaziah Judah saw what was happening, he fled up the road towards Beth Hagen. Jehu pursued him, shouting, shoot him too. So they shot him in his chariot at Gur Pass near Belem. But he fled to Megiddo and died there. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezreel heard about it, or Jezebel, she heard about it. Joram won't repent. Ahaziah won't repent. They're just running. Now, Jezebel finds out what's been happening. She finds out that her son has been thrown on the ground of Naboth the Jezreelite. She in this moment could remember, if she wanted, this is what God said would happen to those who don't repent. I should probably at least fake repent right now. You know, like when we sent our kids off to college, we said, hey, if you walk with the Lord, we'll support you. If you don't, we, we cut off all your support. Please fake it, at least. 
Like, go to church, show us a bulletin. Now, we don't want you to fake it. We want you to do it right. But we're not going to support it unless you fake it at least. You got to be in a church. You got to be in a small group. You got to have a spiritual mentor. If those three things aren't met, we're done paying the bills. You're on your own. You've declared your independence. You can have it. Jezebel is in a moment where she knows everything's falling apart. All the commanders of Israel are on Jehu's side. She has no army. She has nothing left. Her son is dead. This is a disaster. And look at what she does. Because this is exactly what we're taught to do in our culture. Look. So she painted her eyes, adorned her head, and looked down from the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Do you come in peace, Zimri, killer of your master? She got all dressed up to say, you're not going to touch me. Look how beautiful I am. She would have probably would have been in her early 40s at this point, mid-40s. She's like, I still look good. You aren't going to touch me. I am Jezebel. And then she mocks him. When Jehu enters the gate, she says, do you come in peace? I know you don't. You just killed everybody. That's not even a question. Do you come in peace? Your son was just killed. You found out about it. Your nation is a mess right now. Jehu's armies are coming. People are fleeing into your city to run away. And you go, do you come in peace? That's mocking. You should have been asking, what do I need to do? Because you're going to kill everyone. I, I, what did we do wrong? Can, what's happening right now? Please help us, God. You should have been crying out. Instead, you got all dressed up to confront the guy that God sent. It's exactly what you see in the New Testament with Jesus. People confronting Jesus instead of falling at his feet. And then she mocks him and says, Zimri, killer of your master. She mocks his family. She mocks derogatorily calling him Zimri, who was the one that killed the entire house of Basha. She recognizes that Zimri killed the entire house of Basha, which means she has heard that Jehu is going to kill the whole house of Ahab. Otherwise, she wouldn't use that derogatory comment. It's a challenge. Oh, you think you're so powerful? You think you're like Zimri who killed all of Basha and his sons and his line? Try that on me, buddy. Guys, this is what we can do in our heart. Instead of embracing the peace of God and the war that comes in the soul because we accept Christ and he goes to war against our flesh, we can easily do this. And God wants to offer his peace. He looked up toward the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked down at him, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and Jehu rode over her. Then he went in, ate and drank, said, take care of this cursed woman and bury her, since, well, she's a king's daughter. But when they went out to bury her, they did not find anything but her skull, her feet, and the palms of her hands. You stand in pride to God, there will be nothing left of you. You can either die to your flesh or you can allow God to eat your flesh. So they went back and told him, and he said, well, this fulfills the word of the Lord that he spoke through his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the plot of land at Jezreel, the dogs will eat Jezebel's flesh. Jezebel's corpse will be like manure on the surface of the field in the plot of land at Jezreel so that no one will be able to say ever again, this was powerful Jezebel. She's been eaten, and now those dogs are going to run out right to that field right beside there. Right beside the little castle, they're going to run out to that field and they're going to poop right in that field. And that's exactly what God said would happen. 
Matthew says this. Jesus says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn man against father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. The person who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will be willing to lose it. And anyone losing his life because of me, oh, you'll find it. If you're searching for peace, if you're searching for meaning, if you're searching for whatever it is you're searching for, you can search for that all you want. You'll never truly find it. But if you have me, you'll have it. I promise. It may not seem like it. It may be difficult. It may be a mess. You may live in a disaster, but I am telling you, I will preserve you just like I preserve those 7,000 that have not bowed a knee to Baal. I can and I will do it. Luke says this, I came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already ablaze, but I have a baptism to be baptized with and how it consumes me until it's finished. Do you think that I came here to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, two against three and two, three against two and two against three. In Romans It says this, therefore, we have, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Romans says we have peace with God, and that peace doesn't come because you did everything right, because you manipulated, because you were Jehu, because peace doesn't come for Jehu later. You're going to read the rest of the story. Jehu doesn't follow God. He turns his back on the Lord and it ends badly. He has four generations on the throne. And after his four generations, you know what happens? They get led into a Syrian captivity and the entire nation is wiped out. So it's a temporary peace with Jehu. But God says, I want to give you through faith. Faith is a peace that you don't feel. It's a a peace you believe in by faith. That's what makes it faith. If you're at peace, you don't need peace because you got it. You don't need faith because you have peace. It's when you get peace, when you shouldn't, that means you're having faith. He goes on, he says, we have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We don't rejoice that we won a battle. We don't rejoice that I got four generations going to sit on the throne. We don't rejoice in any of that. We rejoice that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has overthrown every kingdom and every king, and we can trust him to someday come in the midst of the mess we're living in like all the people in Judah and Israel were trusting in God. Generation after generation, there were faithful people with wicked kings, and they lived it out. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that afflictions produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. Proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Look at this. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for Joram. Christ died for Jezebel. Christ died for Ahab. And they were to look forward to the day when when the Messiah would come to save them. When they couldn't make their nation right, they couldn't fix things, but they were to declare to God, we trust you that someday through these temporary sacrifices, you're going to bring the ultimate sacrifice to save us. And Jezebel, Ahab, Joram, Ahaziah, Adaliah, all of them said, no, thank you. 
I am fine with being ungodly. I'll stay there. Thank you very much. You see, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly have to make a choice. You and I have to make a choice. Will we follow Christ? Will we pursue his peace or will we go after some other peace? And I am telling you, when you find it in Christ and you give that to your wife and your kids, and your, it just spreads. It's a beautiful picture. But when you don't, when you find temporary things, it's going to end with you at best, and it may just last a couple of generations after you, but it is going to be horrible after that. And we have a king that's coming back like Jehu that's going to come back on mission, and he is not going to stop till it is finished. Jesus finished for us the death for us and the ungodly, and he's patiently waiting to finish the last, just like God was patiently waiting for Israel to repent and hadn't wiped him out yet. And he's bringing Jehus and Elijahs and Elishas and Micaiahs and all these prophets. He's bringing these people to say, please, 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 don't die. I want you to live for me. And that's the message we get to go out and tell everyone else. And so if you're afflicted, if you're struggling, if you don't have hope, look at what he says. It's laid out so simply here. You've been declared righteous. You don't have to make yourself right. You don't have to get all dressed up like Jezebel and pretend like you're so righteous. You can just say, yeah, I'm a mess. I have blown it. Praise the Lord. He died for you. He died for the ungodly. Good. Next step, become righteous by faith and accept his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place. Thank you for these stories in the Old Testament that show us what it looks like to have a humble heart, to have a heart on mission, and to have a heart that is wicked and far from you. Lord, I thank you for these stories that are passed down, for these faithful men who handed down their lives. They handed down their witness to the next generation the good and the bad. And Lord, I thank you that you can use us because you died for the ungodly. You didn't come for a bunch of righteous people because none of us are righteous, the Bible says, not one. We have all fallen short of your glory. We have all sinned. And the great hope is that you died for ungodly people like us so that we could place our hope and our faith and fully embrace the grace you offer that we can't earn. It is a beautiful picture of what throughout the entire Old Testament you were trying to get people to see. And instead, they kept wanting something more. They wanted a king. They wanted a temple. They wanted another king. They wanted relationships and multiple relationships. They wanted all these things to fulfill them. And in the end, all you could do was do what you promised to do, which was send your judgment. Because you're a just God who doesn't want wicked in the world and you will stop it at its appointed time. Lord, you've appointed a time for us this morning to just come before you, to embrace what Romans says, what you talked about, and to say, you know what? I am right with Jesus. That's all I want to be. Whatever the consequences are, I trust him. And so, Lord, we thank you. If anyone here needs to accept you or online, I pray they would surrender. And for those of us who know you, I pray that we would believe this by faith. We wouldn't just claim it and fake it. We truly embrace the peace that you offer through your word, your commands, and your incredible grace.